When we're on a journey, we look forward to arriving successfully at our destination. But unless we diligently pay attention to directions, it can be easy to get turned around and miss a turn. Disheartening to get lost, stop to ask a friendly local for directions, and be told, you, know, you can't get there from here. Recently, someone on social media posted a graphic saying, Squirrel Road, north and south, and commented something like, need one of these signs closer to around here. Any squirrel chasers in the congregation? It is easy to become distracted. Squirrel! Lose track of what we're supposed to be doing and end up where we did not expect. Same thing can happen all too easily to churches. This brings us to Paul's first letter to Timothy and its setting, the church at Ephesus. Paul had oversight of many churches he planted on his various missionary journeys, but probably none was so dear to him as Ephesus. Other churches he generally had to keep moving on from, but at Ephesus, Paul had labored amongst them teaching two whole years. Acts 19.10. So maybe more than any other church, we could consider Ephesus Paul's particular baby, especially close to his heart. Yet, even though it had such a sound foundation from the apostle himself, the church at Ephesus was seeing squirrels getting distracted off target. False teachers, not unlike others, had crept in and started promoting false doctrines, verse 3, myths and endless genealogies, verse 4, meaningless talk, verse 6, and it didn't seem to know what they're talking about when it came to the law, the Jewish Old Testament, verse 7. And we know a little bit about what may have been influencing them from outside sources. Philo was a Jew who lived in Alexandria and Egypt before this, and Philo had developed this entire system in which the names in the biblical genealogies represented various conditions of the soul. Also, a set of legends had grown up outside scripture captured in the body of writings known as the Talmud. The false teachers built up endless, far-fetched, fictional stories based on obscure genealogical points. Some taught ascetic practices that people had to abstain from marrying or eating certain foods for a three. Uh, by the way, I don't know if it got mentioned about the reception September 14th at Patty's place. Uh, we're getting married in a private ceremony August uh, 17th at Elam Lodge, but you're all welcome to come to the reception on Saturday, September 14th. I did catch Patty looking at me rather closely this past week for some reason. You know, 27 days to go, and hmm. <clears throat> so thinking today, second day in Godrich Emerge in eight, second time at Godrich Emerge in eight days. Honey, we've got to stop meeting like this. Anyway, I'm glad uh, the asceticists that refrained have said you've got to abstain from marriage you didn't get their way. Unfortunately, even today, bad theology is good business. People dissatisfied with conventional religion rush to hear the latest wind of creative teaching. The movie American Gospel portrays well the popularity of the prosperity gospel, wanting God for his signs and wonders and what he can give us, not for himself. And uh, I have some slides here from Laura Stewart. She's, uh, they were another homeschooling family when they lived uh, near Sault Ste. Marie area. Uh, Laura is with... Uh, a mission agency, you can look up on uh, onelife2024.com, I think is her uh, website. Uh, basically, it works with children in Uganda, a very poor children of very poor neighborhoods. They can learn script Bible verses, and then by that earns what they need for school supplies. 
So, and then they had Bible classes with them as well. But here is one post from this week. She said, the daytime photo I took a while back, but it shows the effects of the health and wealth prosperity gospel here, which is really false teachers who are robbing poor people. This particular church sells miracle water, quote unquote, and they sell the jugs too. The lineups are several blocks long in both directions. Other false teachers promise to pray for healing for people if they pay the money. Some have even sold the only piece of land they own. So sad. Well, that's a real life example in today's world. Last November marked 40 years since the false prophet Jim Jones led his devotees to amass suicide of over 900 people in Guyana. Parents even murdered their own children. I've been listening to a podcast called Cultish. It was observed that if Jim Jones were alive today and people didn't know where his teaching would lead, he'd likely be invited onto the Oprah Winfrey show and maybe even land a book contract. Scary. Verse 18, Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight or war the good warfare. Verse 19, he's to be holding on to faith and a good conscience, pulling them close. By contrast, verse 19 continues, some have rejected these. The, the terms involve pushing away from oneself in the Greek, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Paul even had to put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church, verse 20. Serious disciplinary measures were called for. So it's a battle out there. Allow yourself to just drift along with the current popular culture and you risk getting swept over the waterfalls. Discipleship demands discipline. Be strict with yourself and what you read and watch and listen to. How much grief and stress might Paul and other church leaders have been spared if members had paid more attention to their own spiritual focus? Now, if false teachers manipulate the law, twisting it to suit their own ideas, does that mean we should just do away with the law altogether? Isn't it all supposed to be about love, not law, anyway? No, the fact that some abuse the law doesn't mean it's bad or irrelevant. Recall what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, even as he was introducing his radical good news agenda. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For... I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Doesn't exactly sound like the law is to be done away with, does it? Jesus fulfilled the law. He completed it in terms of a sacrificial system. Our righteousness as his followers ought to exceed the most rigorous law-keeping of the best legalists. The requirements of the law are a basic bare minimum to be assumed in a real Christ follower's life. 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly, literally lawfully. Who is it mainly directed to, though? Verse 9, law is made not for, law break, for the righteous, not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Those without the law, that's probably Gentiles in Paul's context, 
and rebels, the unruly, is another way to put that. People who won't be subject or submit to orders or instruction. Hmm. Is there any unruly, anti-authoritarian sentiment around these days? Why do school teachers have trouble with class discipline? Christians should model submission to proper authority. Paul continues in verse 9, the ungodly and sinful, Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Hmm. Does that include you, me? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the law is for the sinful, does that include us? We've all sinned at some time. Look further in verse 9, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. Here Paul seems to start riffing off the second section of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't covet, Exodus 20. Verse 10, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Now, the translation's a little bit muddy here. The Greek rendered adulterers can also include fornicators, those having sex without being married. And the word perverts is more specifically in the Greek, one who lies with a male instead of a female. In terms of getting off track, it's disappointing to see recent decisions by the Presbyterian and Anglican churches along this line. Slave traders. Hmm. When you buy your clothes, do you shop ethically or perhaps inadvertently support the sweatshop system? Liars and perjurers. Are you a man or woman of your word? Can people count on you to do as you promise? Are you careful with your words? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Verses 10b to 11, Paul points out that the law warns against whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. There is a need for sound, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. Bad theology kills people. Just look at Jonestown as an example. Sound doctrine or teaching conforms to the gospel, fits with it, is shaped by it. It's the application, the working out of Jesus' good news in the day-to-day activities of life. Conversion should lead to increasing conformity to Christ. His truth and our relationship with him affect our daily decisions. John writes in 1 John 3, 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Can you say that with me? Now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be, what? Like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. I used to view the Old Testament law as a sort of corral, keeping us within limits in safe pasture. But to say it's a corral, it seems kind of limiting, as if the Lord's restricting us to a smaller area. Maybe instead think of the law as the the fence around a construction site. Uh, They were building the road beside my place this week. Those big dirt piles might have looked fun to play in, 
but the workers had fenced it off to prevent injury. So the law warns us about sin areas which are likely to cause damage somehow if we start trespassing the boundary markers. But the law should not be our main emphasis. That too would be to get off track. Law tends towards religious compliance, checking off the list of do's and don'ts, uh, judging others, oh, they didn't do that one, Phariseeism, which Jesus roundly condemned. Living for Jesus centers on relationship with him through grace. Religion is due, Christianity though is done. So Paul adds a sidebar in verses 12 to 17, highlighting God's great mercy in saving him. This is the proper posture for a fellow sinner, saved by grace. Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's appointment was unique in that it came to him singularly on the road to Damascus, not along with the other 11 disciples. Verse 13 emphasizes his sorry past. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Remember how fierce an enemy of the faith Paul was at first. Acts 7:58 and 81, Paul looked after the clothes of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr for Christ, and approved of his death. Acts 8:3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. 9 Meanwhile, Saul, Saul was still breathing up murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, is this the kind of individual you want to pick to kind of head up a movement? Breathing out murderous threats? He was obsessed with destroying this fledgling Christian movement. Saul took initiative to extend the roundup of apostates to other large centers like Damascus. Yet it was this very arch enemy, fanatical as a terrorist, that our Lord Jesus sovereignly saw fit to stop dead in his tracks, reveal himself to in risen form, and appoint to lifelong missionary work. Acts 20, 24. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. What's that task? Task of testifying to the gospel of God's, what? Grace, not law, grace. Saul deserved heaven the least of anybody. Yet the Lord was pleased to intervene and turn him into a powerful tool in the initial spread of the gospel all the way to Rome. God was making a point. No one is too lost to be saved. If Jesus can do it for Saul, he can do it for you too. This is sheer mercy. Verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul is still your example, my example today, what God can do in somebody's life. Never feel you've 
on anything so bad or so shameful that you can't be forgiven if you repent and confess. The cross is big enough to deal with any sin. The same mercy God showered upon Saul or Paul is available to you today. Or maybe you know someone who's been very resistant to the gospel. Keep praying for them and witnessing to them as the Lord leads. They're not likely as far off as Saul was when the Lord caught up to him. Mercy and grace. Mercy has been described as not getting the judgment we deserved, while grace is getting the benefits we did not deserve. Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The phrase poured out abundantly could also be put abounded exceedingly, overflowed, super increased, richly, lavishly, not begrudgingly or sparingly, holding back. Many years ago, a poor woman from the slums of London, England, was invited to go with a group of people for a holiday at the ocean. She'd never seen the ocean before, and when she saw it, she burst into tears. Those around her thought it was strange that she should cry when such a lovely holiday had been given her. Why in the world are you crying, they asked. Pointing to the ocean, she answered, this is the only thing I've ever seen. There was enough. God has oceans of mercy. There is enough of it. And God delights to show his mercy and compassion, like a 719. Grace poured out abundantly. Grace is part of a package deal. Paul says it was poured out on him in verse 14, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Faith is key. That's the initial receptiveness, being willing to commit and entrust our lives to this inviting God. Love here is literally agape. God's special, unconditional, there-for-you-no-matter-what love that doesn't need to necessarily find the other attractive or desirable. Love that sacrifices for the other, going to the cross to meet their desperate need and restore relationship. Uh, It was hard for me to raise my hands in worship just because everything hurts to move these days with all the burns and that, but I got burned on my front. Think of Jesus, uh, got whipped and his back torn about part to shreds, basically, and then they nailed him to the cross, the most painful form of execution. Like all that pain he went through for you. So what's our motivation for Christian living? Not legalism, religion, works righteousness, as if salvation is something to be earned, but grace prompted. We share God's agape to others as part of grace's overflow. Our lives find their foundation on this solid fact. Verse 15. Can we read this together? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Did I just hear you say you're the worst sinner in the world? I think I just said it too. Like that's the model Paul is setting out for us as an example. Um, that's why Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Not for people who supposed they were already righteous or deserved heaven. The Pharisees missed the boat. 
No, Paul doesn't say of whom I was the worst, past tense, but of whom I am the worst, even now as an apostle. Grace, recalling God's goodness to us when we were still sinners, helps keep us humble. And other people find that a whole lot more appealing posture when we would witness to them. We began today with Paul and Timothy looking at how some in the church, false teachers, had gotten off track. The digression into genealogies, myths, and abstaining from certain foods and marriage was diverting Christians from what life ought to be all about. What's that? Back up to verse 5 to see what some had wandered away from to turn to meaningless talk. In verse 6, verse 5, the goal of this command is what? Love, which comes from where? A pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What's the goal, people? Love, yeah. Agape, charitable, sacrificial love that's not out to get something for itself in the deal. But in our human fallenness and depravity, we can't manufacture this God kind of love on our own steam. Where does it come from? Well, three things Paul lists. Let's take them kind of in reverse order. First, a sincere faith the end of verse 5 there. It all starts with putting your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When we put belief in Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit, God's very being, into our lives. He pro- Jesus proclaimed loudly in John 7.38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him, meaning The Spirit, verse 39. The Holy Spirit becomes the source for God's love to start flowing in our lives, to put up with irritable people, to show them the grace we've been shown. Romans 5.5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The goal of Christian living, love, starts with faith. As the Holy Spirit is given more control, we start to notice his conviction about various shortcomings we have. So Paul can say love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, as well as a sincere faith. We need to keep allowing the Spirit to do house cleaning in our heart, to take out idols and passions that don't belong, so it becomes pure, single, given over 100% to God. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And pay attention to your conscience. Alongside the law, conscience is one of the built-in tools God has endowed all people with that should be pointing them toward their need for a savior. Can you say with Paul in Acts 24, 16, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Hmm. Start being a little more repentant, heeding that still small voice, humbling yourself before God's directing nudges. And people around you just may be pleasantly surprised by how much more considerate, selfless, and genuinely loving you are becoming. There's an account of an attempted assassination of the first Queen Elizabeth of England. The woman who sought to do so dressed as a male page and secreted herself in the Queen's boudoir, awaiting the convenient moment to stab the Queen to death. She didn't realize that the Queen's attendants would be very careful to search the rooms 
before Her Majesty was permitted to retire. They found the woman hidden there among the gowns and brought her into the presence of the queen after confiscating the poniard that she had hoped to plant into the heart of the sovereign. Now, the would-be assassin realized that her case, humanly speaking, was hopeless. She threw herself down on her knees and pleaded and begged the queen as a woman to have compassion on her a woman and to show her grace. Queen Elizabeth looked at her coldly and quietly and said, If I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? The woman looked up and said, Grace that hath conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions, is not grace at all. Queen Elizabeth caught the idea in a moment and said, You're right. I pardon you of my grace. And they led her away, a free woman. History tells us that from that moment, Queen Elizabeth had no more faithful, devoted servant than that woman who had intended to take her life. It's exactly the way the grace of God works in the life of an individual. It motivates us to become a loving, devoted, faithful servant of God. Now, one more story, illustration, um, just very quickly. Uh, an old Indian chief was one time trying to explain to others in his tribe what this whole Christianity thing was about and grace and mercy and so on. So he took a, a worm up off the ground and he put it on a little pile of leaves and he started a fire at the outside edge of the pile of leaves. And so they stood and watched the flames grow closer and closer to the worm that was sitting in the middle. And at the very last instant, the old chief reached down in with his arm, pulled out the worm and held it open in his palm there, it was alive and well, and he said, me, that worm. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the law and its direction in our lives and setting parameters and boundaries so we don't harm ourselves that way. But Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to pour out your love in our lives for, and uh, help us to appreciate how much you have forgiven us so that we can be people of grace as well toward others. In Christ's name, amen.